0: Welcome to this week's episode of Swig of Intellect. I'm Patrick DeButlow, and I'm here with Lisa Gray.
1: Hello, Patrick. How are you?
0: Hello, Lisa. I'm very well. How are you?
1: I'm very well, and thank you again, listeners, for joining us for a Swig of Intellect, your conversation companion. We'll share the news you need to know, give you insights into the media sources that you're following, and share a couple of shots of culture, ensuring that you have something else to talk about, besides 2020 oh gosh i'm so glad it's nearly finished how about you patrick
0: no i've loved every moment of it um like everyone else uh
1: let's so, do it let's point. do it again um <laughs> Why not? One, one
0: more time encore
1: So this week we'll show you uh, what we think you should know about uh, Trump allowing the transition to begin, Canadian PM pranked by Greta Thunberg satellites, and the UK has been given its COVID rules for over Christmas. But first, Uh the source review is in Patrick's capable hands this week. What are you following?
0: Is it? Am I I doing the source review this week? (laughs) Yes. So this week I'm bringing the BBC World Service, uh, which is a legend in the broadcast world, Um, It's the world's largest radio broadcasting service of its kind and probably the most famous internationally. It broadcasts news, speech and discussions in more than 40 languages today and it goes out all over the world on as many radio waves as possible. Therefore, it manages to reach some of the most remote and poor parts of the world. And, you know, no matter how cheap your radio is, you've got a pretty good chance of being able to get the BBC World Service Um, It reaches an average of 210 million people around the world every week. Um, That's through the radio, the news site, online. So it has a tremendous audience. Um, Nowadays, it's funded by the TV license fee, and it also receives an extra £289 million just for the World Service from the British government. That's set to expire this year, but then they're going to renegotiate the figure as they always do. So that was for the last five years. So we'll see whether it gets an increase or a decrease in funding, but it generally tends to remain quite stable. Um, The BBC World Service nowadays has eight regional feeds, so East and South Africa, West and Central Africa, Europe and the Middle East, uh, the Americas and the Caribbean, East Asia, South Asia, Australasia and the United Kingdom. Uh, The current controller of the BBC World Service is Mary Hockaday, who is a former journalist for the World Service. She was a journalist in the World Service in Prague in the 90s, then came back and was running quite a few of the foreign operations and then uh, became the controller a few years ago, a position she still has. Now, the BBC World Service was launched in 1932 as the BBC Empire Service and it was mainly launched in order to reach English speakers across the empire and to connect them. And King George V gave his first Christmas message on the service. Now, hopes were very low when they first began the service. Um, You know, there wasn't much of a thought apart from the fact that they were trying to reach as many people as possible throughout the empire, but they didn't think it would become a major thing. Now, this, this changed as the 1930s went along, and it began to expand. The first foreign language service was launched in 1938 in Arabic, Uh, which became very important during the war to reach Arabic audiences. By 1942, it was broadcast in every single major European language, and in 1939, it had been renamed the BBC Overseas Service to better reflect the role um, that it had during the Second World War and at the beginning um, in foreign affairs and international relations. The External Service, which was another wing of the BBC's Overseas Service, was the main propaganda channel internationally throughout the Second World War. So, for example, the French Resistance, when they wanted to listen to codes that were sent to them, would use Radio Londres, which was part of the External Service. Service, and that's a way for the British to communicate with the resistance and send them codes on sabotage missions and etc. Um, Now, George Orwell, also very famously, was one of the broadcasters, and he was on the Eastern service throughout the war, broadcasting news bulletins. And as broadcasting and radio stations improved after the war in the late 1950s and early 1960s, it expanded the overseas service dramatically um, and really began to reach most of the countries in the world. In 1965, it was renamed the BBC World Service, as it is still today, and... Probably one of its most famous episodes, it's only ever gone off air once, which was during the Margaret Thatcher government, when the station had made an interview with Martin McGuinness of Sinn Féin and the IRA, and Margaret Thatcher had banned the interview from going out on the waves, and this led to a mass protest uh, by the BBC World Service, and it's the only time in its history it's gone off the air. In the 1990s, financial pressures began to affect it, As the world changed, there was much more competition from other news sources, from American news sources, CNN International, so on and so forth. And it had to close a lot of the foreign language services in order to focus on what it saw as the most important ones, especially the Arabic services became very important in the 90s after the Gulf War, and then in the 2000s um, as the war in Afghanistan and the second Iraq war started. So there were those closures of a lot of that expansion that it had done early on. It also only ever uses GMT time, so Greenwich Meridian time, no matter where or when it, where it is in the world. That's the only time zone that it will use. Um which gives it sort of a coherent flavor across it. So my conclusion, apart from the fact that it's a legendary news source, uh, when my girlfriend has it on in the morning, I tend to listen to it, uh, you know, not just because she has it on, but because I really enjoy it. And I think it's a fantastic news source. You get so many incredible news stories, so much um you know, stories from all over the globe which come into it. And, um, yeah, so that's my view on the BBC World Service. I highly recommend it. I love listening to it. I love hearing stories. You know, you'll have stories about a singer, you know, uh, doing politics in Uganda in the morning. Then you'll have a story about the U.S. election. And some of the coverage I've heard on on the World Service, just to give an example recently, Concerning the election was, to be honest, the best uh, coverage I saw anywhere. I mean, really interesting getting, you know, three Republican women, three Democratic women sitting down in a state, you know, somewhere in the Midwest and just talking for half an hour. and, And I got such an insight, which I never got anywhere else. And it made a lot of the other coverage from other news sources seem quite superficial in comparison. And I think it's the great legacy of the British Empire at a time when the British Empire and its history is so controversial and seems to be getting this is one positive legacy that it's left behind because no other country in history has had such a large empire and with such a reach and the bbc world service is probably one of the most positive legacies of it because it's still concerned with news from all over the world i mean it literally will talk about every single continent you over the course of a week you'll be able to get news stories about countries from everywhere and that's that's why i absolutely love the world service
1: I think even my dad would agree with you, Patrick, about it being a positive uh, legacy of the British Empire. <laughs> I, um, mm-hmm. I think um, I I'm really glad that you brought up a audio uh, news source uh, because uh, audio as a trend um, technologically is 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 really made a comeback in the last couple of years. Obviously, we're on a podcast at the moment. Uh, radio as a news source, interestingly, even though it doesn't have the visual side, is really. Is, re- is becoming more and more engaging, um, especially as a lot of young people are using it as a preference rather than reading. They find it as a, as a time saver. But I agree with you. I think um, brands like the BBC World Service really stand up to being quite thorough. And I like the fact that it, it feels like it comes from a global perspective. Like that example that you gave of, um, of Republican and Democrats sitting at the same table having a discussion, I wish it would happen more.
0: Yes, but that's—it's a really interesting point you bring up, and this is a long, you know, historical criticism of television. But television, being a visual medium, often focuses on superficialities. So we all know about, you know, TV anchors with blow-dried hair. But more than that, in depth, the great benefit of radio, I find, when you listen to it, and as you say, I mean, even going back, to the influence of talk radio in America in the 90s and, and up till today is colossal. It's still one of the primary news sources for people. But you can concentrate on other things except for the visual aspect. And I often do find that coverage on radio and in particular on the world service is much deeper than most of what I tend to see on television. Not all of it, but a lot of it.
1: Yeah, I think one of the challenges that media has these days is the um, trying to engage the short attention span, but actually listening to you talk about an audio service for news... You don't question that, you know, you do sit and let it linger and um, I think the BBC have set a really good standard on on, on thorough discussions and intellect and um, yes, it's um, I think it's very important. So I'm so glad you covered an audio news source. Thank you very much, Patrick. My pleasure. <laughs> so now on to Swig of the News. So we've had some progress this week with US politics. It seems like Trump is letting the proceedings of transition to commence. He still refused to concede and vowed to continue fighting in court, um, but he's given the green light for Biden to coordinate with federal agencies ahead of, of, of the January twenty inauguration. Um, but Trump did tweet that he was directing his team to cooperate on the transition. So that's that's good that we're getting a little bit of movement there, isn't it, Patrick?
0: Yes, it's, it's really interesting. Um, I, I think it's, it's positive from a certain point of view, and it does seem like part of the Republican Party is helping in that way. and and trying to do his transitions and other parts of it less so because Biden has really gone full steam ahead. We've seen a lot of his um, cabinet appointments, so they'll be the first ever Woman um, Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, who was the former chairman of the Federal Reserve until her term wasn't renewed by Donald Trump. Um, I do think one of the interesting stories that came out, it was a lot on the left wing press and, and The Guardian, for example, is that a lot of people feel that it's looking a bit too much like a third Obama term. A lot of his picks, most of them, in fact, are Obama veterans. And it would be really interesting to see what his cabinet ends up looking like. But it definitely does seem like he's trying to continue a lot of the... Well, he doesn't have much of a choice, but they they are because the only two Democratic um, administrations previous to him are the Clinton and Obama. But it is quite striking every time how many uh, people come from the Clinton and Obama administrations.
1: Mm, yeah, we'll watch this space. I also think we have to pay attention that even though Trump is agreeing to move forward with the transition, there's some interesting... Things he's trying to um, to to implement. Uh, there was there has been it's been reported in Al Jazeera that um, he's Trump has told his allies he plans to pardon his former national security advisor, Michael Flynn, who had pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI during an investigation into the Russia, Russian meddling in the 2016 presidential election. Uh, you know, I think you said a couple of weeks ago that we will probably see a couple of um, this is quite typical of a president in this transition to tidy up or do whatever they can while they've got the power. And so I guess this isn't a surprise, is it?
0: No, it's not a surprise. And it wouldn't be the first time you have controversial pardons. I think in in recent memory, interestingly enough, George W. Bush was quite notorious and actually uh, quite unpopular among many Republicans for the lack of pardons he gave when he left office. Uh, Bill Clinton is probably in, in living memory the one who had the most infamous pardons. Uh, sort of on a Trump level when he pardoned Mark Rich, the disgraced financier, and quite a few other controversial pardons, and I think that caused a really big scandal. but it is very much you know up to the the discretion of the presidency the The most it can really affect is your legacy generally um you have a huge amount of leeway with who you pardon, and Clinton did it. I think Trump, who really tends you know from his behavior not to care that much about conventional norms, I think his pardons will be really interesting, and it wouldn't be surprising at all if he pardoned Michael Flynn.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Uh, and and on to how U.S. politics is influencing U.K. politics. I was I saw this headline and I wanted to talk to you about it, Patrick, because I haven't had much of a chance to read about it. That Biden says no hard border between Ireland and the U.K. Uh, Have
0: you been across this? I I think it's one of the most interesting facets of Joe Biden is that Joe Biden. Who sees himself as a very Irish-American politician and has a you know deep deep love and, and respect for Ireland, he's adamant that the Good Friday um, agreement has to be kept in place and that no hard border should be allowed to be put in, and he's really putting a lot of pressure on it. So it'll be really interesting because Boris Johnson has said quite different things, you know, about the potential for a hard border or not, and in many cases has been quite vague. I think for for a lot of people's point of view, but it's really interesting that now with a new American president. Um, who is very, very concerned uh, with Irish politics and with EU politics? That he is definitely sending out a message saying that, in his particular case, he doesn't want the Americans uh, to see a hard border between Ireland and the UK. And we'll see whether that affects the British in terms of their negotiations of the Brexit talks.
1: I've always been um, curious at the etiquette of this when a, a, a American or an English leader goes into another country and makes quite a solid um, opinion about what's happening. But well, it's not country.
0: always popular. It can have backlash. Uh, it happened with Obama when Obama interfered in the Brexit vote. And Obama basically came over and was sort of campaigning for um, for staying, for remaining. And that turned a lot of people off it. Um, there's no doubt, and it's not a, a secret, you know, of course, UK politics hu- and influence on the world stage are hugely tied into American politics. Um, the special relationship, of course. But I don't think any country, even the UK, likes to be told what to do overtly. Biden hasn't gone quite that far. He hasn't quite said no hard border, but he has he has say, come as close as he probably can in, into Planned Terms of saying that's what his preference is, and we'll see how that plays in in British domestic politics.
1: Uh, another headline that I have been wanting to speak to you about, Patrick, is the reports on the um, UK facing its um, its its true economic crisis. So the combination of Brexit and what's been going on with COVID and what the consequence of that's going to be is something that you've been speaking about in the last couple of weeks quite yes. passionately. And um, this paper that the Guardian has seemed to got its hands on that the cabinet has been exploring seems quite, yeah, seems a little bit scary.
0: I think it's actually a Whitehall civil service paper. But yes, I mean, basically, the civil service mm-hmm. thinks there's a potential uh, perfect storm between um, debts from furloughs, COVID, Uh, government spending, so on and so forth, also flooding natural disasters, which are predicted for the end of the year. And they're very worried that it might be too much for the British economy to handle all at once, and that it could lead to a really big economic crisis. And they're very worried. That this could be one of the worst economic crises in Britain since the 1970s, um, when there was again a perfect storm of things happening financially at the time, and so so they're very worried. So it's it's a really interesting document. Um, I, I'd urge anyone to read it. Whitehall—it's it, part of their mission as as the civil service to to warn the government about this sort of thing. But yes, as I've spoken about, I, there there are a lot of problems going on with the economy. And especially at the moment, because of COVID, and we are in an unprecedented time when, when so many businesses have been closed, it's true that the government is in a very fragile position. And also politically, it will be in a tricky spot because it most likely will have to raise taxes, which again can dampen the economy. So so there are a whole amount of factors which are coming in to play. Mm-hmm. So so it's true, but it's a very interesting document and paper. We'll
1: we include that link in our um, in our summary. So uh, we've also been told uh, what the rules are going to be across Christmas for um, in, in regards to COVID and socialising. It's um, been announced we will... Um, so the long-playing Christmas bubbles, which are looking at um, the minimum, the max, sorry, to be able to socialise with three different um, households, um, could also, um, you know, see a spike in, in COVID, um, which, you know, is no surprise in the number of cases. But it's um, it seems like the you know, you can actually. I think I'm reading now that you can let three houses mix for about five days. Is what they've decided is going to be the um, the etiquette.
0: Yes, I haven't. I haven't looked at the the Christmas ones, uh, the bubbles. So I, I've seen that the the idea is sort of coming through, but I'm not exactly sure for the details. I'm I'm going to have to look at that um, more clearly. But yes, of course, I mean, for the government and everyone said that, you know, for Christmas, it's really not something the government can afford anyway to to be shut down. I don't think people will put up with it. And especially the reaction to the second lockdown, it's it's, you know, it makes complete sense that that people will have to travel and see their families. Um, It's really important. And, yeah, so it'll be interesting to see what happens, especially now, I think, also with Dominic Cummings having left. And a lot of people say that, you know, um, Carrie Simmons has much more influence now and she has quite a different view on, on politics than Dominic Cummings had. We'll also see how that changes Boris Johnson's response to things.
1: Absolutely. And on to world news, uh, we came across a really interesting article about Russian comedians Vovan and Lexus, um pranking the Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in a phone call during which he believed he was talking to climate change, change activist Greta Thunberg. And he didn't clock on until they asked if they could make characters from South Park, which I think was funny.
0: (laughs) No, I think that I think they're very good. I think also, look, it's yeah, it's probably not going to be Trudeau's most uh, most memorable moment either. And I think it, it I think it is quite funny with Greta Thunberg that, you know, they are managing. I think it's always been the great criticism from people who who don't like sort of Greta Thunberg youth politics. It's quite funny that, you know, look how easily Justin Trudeau can be fooled. Uh, but it's true the transcript of the call is quite funny actually and some of the things she gets him to say or agree with um so it's it's they're, they're, it's it's very well done i mean i think people always enjoy seeing politicians fall flat on their faces uh which he did and it took him quite a while to clock on that this wasn't really the real Greta thunberg <laughs>
1: Uh, 2020. We've all had a great year. Um, speaking of, uh, there was uh, you brought our attention to a um, a drug haul in Thailand, which was in fact lavatory cleaner. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Yeah, so,
0: so um, the Thai government thought they got one of the the biggest, um, if not the biggest, haul of ketamine ever recorded. So they thought they'd captured 715 million pounds worth of ketamine. Mm-hmm. And what had happened, in fact, is that it was a lavatory cleaner that because it, of the test that uh, does, it turns the same color as ketamine when you do the test. And basically, they hadn't done further tests, so they just thought they had this massive amount of ketamine. And in fact, not at all. It's just a food additive and lavatory, uh, lavatory cleaner ingredient that's used on it. So this massive haul is, has brought quite a lot of shame onto the Justice Minister. And they've just ended up with 475 sacks of trisodium phosphate which is a perfectly legal chemical, um, but it's it's quite funny. Again, a bad year 2020 for the Thai authorities. Um, no record drug deal bust, I'm afraid, not ketamine, just laboratory cleaner.
1: Uh, oh, dear. Uh, and lastly, um, I wanted to bring your attention to a wonderful article I read um, in... Um, in the Guardian this week about um, uh, little uh, policies that have been put in place to allow French citizens to embrace their own people power. It uh, it was um, a really great article about communities working together to um, to actually take um, policy decisions into their own hands and seeing with the uh, al- sorry with the allowance of um, of, of just of, of you know helping with climate change, helping with. Um, ways that they can build better um, social justice policies within their community and I you know I, I enjoyed it I thought it was a wonderful read.
0: Yes it was a great read I mean it's it's a very interesting thing because France has a very presidential top um, down system and where where to be honest yes you have the mayors and most of the real power is located very much in Paris very much in the figure of the president um, look, citizens' assemblies are nothing nothing new. Um, Democratic Athens, you know, that's how it worked, citizens' assemblies. Not that it lasted for a very long time, but it's a great experiment in, in democracy. It is also self-interested. The French government um, has gone through terrible riots with the gilets jaunes. Macron is, you know, not looking particularly good for his next re-election. And this is, I think, a big attempt by the government to try and reconnect with local people, um, with local voters, and to give them sort of an idea of a say. Now, the practicalities of it haven't been really hashed out. But it's it's a it's a good story. It's a fun story. I like some of the stories about, you know, the villagers saying, you know, even though we don't always have time to brush up as policy experts, it does give us a new view and new lens into to policy and into politics and, and really enjoying it. And so I think it, it's a good idea whether it will have legs in France, which is a country which traditionally has really worked on authoritarian politics. You know, um, de Gaulle's government was a dictatorship, in fact. You know, one media channel everything very tightly controlled and censored and that tends to be the tradition in French politics Um, so it'll be really interesting to see Macron trying to win re-election trying to reconnect with people which he's had a lot of trouble with you know he's often been seen as the Rothschild elite banker and I'm really curious to see how it goes
1: yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. It's good to see people trying, trying new new ways. Um, so my capsule, uh, what are you bringing from the past, Patrick?
0: So I wanted to bring a, a rather silly story, but one I thought was quite funny and I never heard about, uh, which is the butter crisis of 2011 in Norway. So what happened is in 2011, there were very, very heavy rains in Norway, which affected the grazing of the cows and led to a loss of almost 20 million litres of milk. Now, in turn, this led to a massive demand for butter because, of course, there was no more milk to produce butter. And in Norway, butter is really important. It's seen as a Christmas uh, staple, so you need it. And also it's seen as a health food. And so this led to, to, you know, tremendous butter scares and scarcities in Norway. And neighboring countries came up with offers to help. So you had enterprising students from other countries, so to make a bit of money, were auctioning butter off to Norwegian neighbors. You had Swedish butter smugglers who were trying to cross the border and who were um, constantly being arrested by police. Uh, the Norwegians also did massive cross-border raids into Sweden. And they were saying at one point that nine out of 10, every supermarket shopper in Sweden was actually Norwegian. Uh, so you could go and buy masses of butter from Sweden. And it got to such a level that, you know, duty-free magnates were going over into from Denmark into Norway and they were offering free packs of butter to come and shop with their firms. And later on, duty-free stores were in Denmark were also, um, st- instead of stocking whiskey and, and alcohol, they were stocking, you know, tons of butter for the Norwegians. And anyway, after a year, it got all fixed. Um, but it was really, really interesting to see how even in a modern country and one of the richest countries in the world, um, you can have food scarcity and what that leads to in terms, of, in terms of behavior changes. And so economists had a field day looking at what could happen with food shortages of staples in, in other first world countries.
1: Oh, funny. That's hilarious. It probably wasn't funny at the time, but that's... that's, Not for the Norwegians, but I
0: do think a lot of people did find it quite amusing, especially some of the neighbours who are less keen on the Norwegians, shall we say.
1: (laughs) And now I'm bringing from the future a wonderful article I saw um, where in Melbourne, 1,200 acres of... as. Um, is wasted of parking spaces, and one architecture firm is looking to reimagine them into um, into public spaces. So they're looking at reimagine them into rooftop gardens, into play areas for kids, um, to to regenerate um, community development, which I think is wonderful. Um, I, I when I was reading the article, I do have memories of Melbourne being you know, I can see exactly how it would absolutely benefit the community. And there's one thing I've learned during COVID is, you know, how important parks and green spaces are in the middle of the city. Mm-hmm. So I think this is a wonderful initiative and I really, really hope that um, it gets realized.
0: It's a, great, it's a great idea and a great plan. And I think as we start moving very slowly away from cars, um, potentially, there's so much that there's always a lot of articles, but there's a really good book about this, which is about just how much space parking spaces take up, of land throughout the world and especially with cities and how what you could do with that land. So I think it's incredible. It's doing in Melbourne because, you know, parking spaces and parking lots are pretty hideous. Um, So it'd be incredible if you could turn them into something beautiful in a, in an urban environment.
1: Absolutely. So now to shop culture, Patrick. What have you got for so us?
0: So I, I wanted to bring one uh, very close to my heart this week because you know we've all been in lockdown. But some good news, you know. So I, I'm a dedicated bookworm. Books are my passion. I, I love reading nonstop whenever I can. And um, because of lockdown, we haven't had access to physical bookshops. Now I think Jeff Bezos has enough money uh, through the lockdown that he'll be okay if we we do. So I was very happy to see that Dawn Bookshop in Marlebone has opened a special counter where you. you. You can still go. So you can't go into the bookshop, but you can go and talk to the staff there and they can recommend you books and you can still buy them physically, which I thought was wonderful. So I thought if any of you are in Marlebone or listening to us in London, here's a great way to support a fantastic, one of the most beautiful bookshops in London. But I think it's such a positive thing that, you know, um, we don't have to only buy through Amazon. We can actually still go and support a, a beautiful bookshop in person. And book sales have gone through the roof, apparently. Uh, I think it's been the best year for publishing uh, for physical sales of books since, since 2011, I think Bloomsbury said, um, who published Harry Potter. So that's some good news out of lockdown. But yeah. Um, Anyway, if you have the chance, I I think it's wonderful to support a bookshop. uh, Yeah, I couldn't agree
1: with you more. There's a couple of bookshops locally that I've been going to um, buy books from directly, and I normally go to Amazon. So I think it's causing some really important um, habit changes. So so with me, um, I wanted to bring a virtual exhibition. um, The Halicon Exhibitions, which is a gallery in London, has done a really good job.
0: Is is that the Halcyon Gallery? (laughs)
1: Yes, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) this is well I haven't been to it in person so that's why I've um, deciphered my own pronunciation <laughs> halcyon sounds a lot better uh, so there's got an, they just uh, sent me a note yesterday that they've opened a virtual exhibition that can actually make appointments with some of their staff to take you around uh, via video call and the uh, the exhibition's called us now And the theme is the question of identity on both an individual and community level feels more pertinent in the current global climate than ever before. Us Now looks at how artists appropriate um, um, national and political figures, imagery and iconography in order to address their subject of their work. Uh, They, um, yes, as I said, you can uh, book a private virtual appointment and you can also book an appointment to speak to some of the art experts. So it's a, it's a, I, did a, this, I did it yesterday. It was a wonderful experience and I thoroughly recommend.
0: Fantastic. Definitely. I'd love to look at that. Thank you, Lisa.
1: Well, thank you again for tuning in to A Speak of Intellect. I'm Lisa Gray.
0: And I'm Patrick Butler.
1: And see you next week. See
0: you next week.